Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Greetings and peace, loved ones. What's going on? This is Baraka Blue. Before I introduce this podcast, I want to let you know I have some tour dates coming up. Um, first, I'll be in Lebanon from September 7th through 11th for a retreat called The Secrets of Silence and Speech. Um, this is with the Lighthouse Initiative, Dr. Hibba, who is a scholar from Lebanon, a professor at the American University of Beirut and her organization. Uh, this will be the third time that I've been out there. And uh, if you're anywhere in the Middle East, I highly recommend coming. Um, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah will be there. Uh, the great MC bre- uh, brother Ali will be there. Ali Keeler from Firdos Ensemble will be there and others. Um, I'll be doing some performances as well as some uh, workshops. Uh, and then I'll be in the UK on the 15th or let's see, the 16th of September. Saturday, I'll be in London. 17th, I'll be Peterborough. 18th, Leicester. 19th, Luton. 20th, Nottingham. 21st, Derby. Uh, 23rd, I'll be back in London. There's a Sufi conference and a Molid. Uh, which is Sheikh Tijani, that I'll be attending. 24th, I'll be in London. There'll be an all-day retreat in nature with uh, the Rabani Project. That's the pearls. Uh, that should be beautiful. 25th, I'll be in Wales. 26th, Manchester. 27th or 28th, Bradford. And then 29th, again, Manchester. Um, then I fly to Chicago. For the 1st through the 3rd of October, I'll be at the Iman Retreat. I'm looking forward to that. And then um, there is a retreat from the 6th through the 9th of October in Indiana, um, which is, let's see, I understand it's near Chicago. It's uh, about an hour away from Chicago. Um, and the retreat is called the Priceless Repository of Our Primordial Nature, Al-Fitra, that's also with Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, and he'll be covering a text he wrote about the fitra, about the primordial nature, the essence, the original uh, nature and potential of the human being and how to connect with our uh, true nature. So I'll be uh, performing at that as well. I'm pretty excited about all those. So those are just the dates. But um, if you want more information about venues, etc., you can go to my Facebook uh Barak, uh, facebook.com slash Baraka Blue, and uh, you can get all those details there. And uh, you could just message us as well. Yeah, so that's all I have for dates. Now, this podcast is with Sidi Abdurrahman Malik, who was a friend of mine uh, for a long time. He's a journalist, he's an activist organizer, he's someone who is from Canada but has been involved living in. In uh, Toronto, uh, he's from Toronto, but he's been living in London for many years, and involved with Radical Middle Way, Q News, if you remember that, um, and many, many other endeavors. And he's someone who has a lot of insights on the community, from scholarship to artists to activism to organizing, and um, it's always a blessing to talk to him. In the beginning, we talked about coffee. That's also his. One of his secrets is that he's the hidden imam of coffee, as I like to 
to call him. Um, he really uh, is an aficionado of the bean and also a historian of it. In fact, he uh, he he has a BBC radio show and uh, he did a mini radio documentary on the history of coffee and its relationship to Islam. So in the beginning of the podcast, I had him uh, drop a little knowledge about that. But um, I think you'll enjoy. So I'll let you have the podcast. Um, if you'd like to support, thank you so much for listening. It's an honor. It's a blessing for me to share these. Um, you can support on Patreon, patreon.com slash path and present. And just check out the Patreon site. You see Patreon's pretty cool. It allows people to uh, support artistic endeavors, creative endeavors, support content that they like uh, from content creators all around the world. And, um, you know, you can give a dollar, five dollars a month or whatever. And it's kind of a way for community to support endeavors like this. So uh, without further ado, here's Abdurrahman Malik. Bismillah. Abdurrahman Malik, it's uh, great to talk to you, my brother. It's wonderful to speak to you, Sidi. It's uh, I know we've uh, we've been we've been thinking about and planning a conversation like this for a long time. So I'm I'm really pleased that we've been we've been able to do it, uh, even though we're not in the same place physically and we're at two ends of the world. You are in paradise, and uh, I'm in modern, urban, cosmopolitan, messy London. <laughs> well, it's been a blessing that every time I come to London, it's obligatory that I visit you if I can, and if you're in town. And we tend to meet in like some secret, undisclosed, you know, avant-garde, third-wave coffee shop that only seven people on earth know about, <laughs> you know. And that's why I, tend, I call you the hidden imam of coffee. And, oh, uh, but also... Over the years, like we found ourselves in the same place at the same time in different continents, whether it's Singapore or Seattle, so that's a blessing as well. It has been. It, it's been. It's, it's been a real blessing. And and you know, I, I just think it's it's the barakah of friendship, and there's this alchemy I think between coffee and friendship. Mm. And you know, I've I've felt that alchemy all my life, to be honest. Uh, because my love affair with coffee really began with my parents. Because, you know, in, in our house, in our home, we always drank tea. We never brewed coffee. Um, tea was sort of, you know, the, the, the libation that, that kept you going. It punctuated the day. It provided opportunities for the family to come together or to hang out for a little bit or to recover from, from you know, the vicissitudes of life. But coffee was something, you know, you, we went out for. Uh, we went out for coffee and donuts. We, 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 we purchased a cup of coffee. We sat in a cafe. There was life and busyness and, and people around. And I think since the very beginning of my experience with coffee, I've always seen it as this, this incredible social beverage. And so I think over the years, um, the friendships that I've come to value and the people I've come to love. So many of those friendships and so much of that love has been cultivated over, over coffee. Uh, and I, I feel that's the way with us as well. I remember when we were in Seattle and it turned out that we were there together and, and you mentioned, Hey, let's meet at this, at this coffee shop, this incredible place just by the water. 
and it was the most gorgeous sunny day. And um, we sat there, and I think we had three or four different beans, and it was it was beautiful. And I I, I knew that our 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 friendship and uh, our love was was cemented right there. And and so it's 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 entirely right and appropriate that Alhamdulillah, when when uh, Allah has uh, has allowed our paths to intersect, that uh, there's always coffee involved. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's the Mohammedan bean for a reason. Yeah, I it's, wanted uh, to get into that. I wanted to hear that. Day. Because I know you're uh, someone who I've learned probably the most about the history of coffee. Um, and, you know, I'm a fan just of mastery of anything. And, you know, mm-hmm. in a certain sense, if you've mastered anything, it's as if you've mastered everything. Just mastery and devotion to, to something gives you a certain vantage point. And excellence, of course, ihsan, excellence is, is mm-hmm. so tied to the spiritual path. Um, but you're someone who taught me a lot about the history of coffee. And I know you did a BBC, uh, radio documentary recently about the history of coffee. So I'll, uh, I'll put the link to that with this podcast so people can find it. Oh, that, that'd be wonderful. But why don't you, you know, for me, why don't you summarize maybe some of that history and why you feel that that it's important, and especially for Muslims, to understand that heritage? You know, I, I think that, for me, the history of coffee is deeply tied to the spiritual DNA of, of, of Muslim civilizations, and actually Muslim cultures. Uh, because in, in many ways, you know, coffee, for some divine reason, you know, some divine secret, Coffee was only given to the Horn of Africa, particularly the place that we call Ethiopia today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's indigenous to those particular lands. So in a way, Ethiopia is where coffee has its, uh, has its origins, or first creation. But it's in the Yemen uh, that coffee finds its soul. And I think there's, there's something really beautiful about that. Part of it is about migration. And, and you know, people migrate, but... Plants and nature also migrates. And there was this migration from the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, in particular to the Yemen, where coffee flourished in that blessed soil. And it was in the first discovery of coffee as a, as a means for devotion. You know, there's, there's so many interesting characters in, in, in the early history of coffee. And, and you know, some of, that, some of that history is controversial in the sense that even the early Muslim historians of coffee would argue over whether it was um, Hadrat uh, Ali ibn Umar al-Shadali al-Aydarus, who was the one who popularized coffee, or whether it was his teacher, or whether it was his contemporary. But the, what we definitely know is that the discovery of the bean as a means to, you know, um, as a means for devotion, as a means of liveliness so that people could worship God um, definitely happened in the Yemen. It happened among the Sufis of the Yemen. And it was in those tariqas, in those, in those brotherhoods of love for God and love for the Prophet, uh, upon whom be peace, that coffee became means um, to further that devotion. So in the very DNA of the beverage, there is this uh, it's encoded that that this is something that is drunk together amongst a brotherhood or a fraternity of people, mm. and it has a higher purpose. Mm. And that higher purpose, of course, initially was devotion. 
but you know nothing can be controlled and that's what i i mean you're you're a cultural producer par excellence and i think one of the things we all understand about culture is you can't control culture you can't place jurisprudence around culture you can't put fences around it because culture is like water it seeps it seeps far beyond the places where it began and as a culture of coffee was created amongst the sufi fraternities of the of the yemen people started experiencing it outside of that context and yet their reference was always back to the people who founded it which is why there was such a great devotion to those early characters um and early personalities uh of coffee culture like uh Sheikh Ali ibn Umar al-Shadili al-Aydarus uh and uh, and others because there was a reference that you know we owe this beverage and the culture that it has spawned because of these people and because of trade coffee spread very quickly and of course the natural place it went first was the Hejaz and and to Mecca and there we find the first in the early 1500s find the first major controversies around coffee there's a fatwa against uh against the 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 imbibing and the production of of coffee because coffee was seen as disruptive and i think this for me is that second element of coffee coffee is a disruptive beverage in the way that the history of alcohol is often tied to sublimating the intellect and about a wanton dionysian joy and pleasure coffee is the exact opposite mm. it's it's a beverage which is always associated with gathering thinking disruption revolution um of breaking the social order and and in a way when when the the people of the Yemen started brewing coffee in the precinct of the Holy Kaaba and sharing the beverage and reciting maulid while they were drinking it and doing dhikr and gathering outside of the normal spaces that people gathered that was a social that was socially disruptive and that social disruption annoyed political authority um political authority for for a time feared it and actually feared it right up into the ottoman days when you know uh, murad the grim banned coffee because murad the grim felt that the coffee houses and the imbibing of coffee was called was causing people to become seditious because they were talking to each other mm-hmm. and in some ways that the spread of coffee from the hijaz to cairo damascus aleppo baghdad basra mosul i mean this kind of incredible um spread of coffee and how quickly it happened eventually constantinople what we call istanbul today each place that it went it created a culture of gathering so if it was the streets out in uh, outside the al azhar where the students uh from the yemen would would roast their beans and crush them and share them with their fellow students or it was the little coffee kiosks that initially formed in the back streets of damascus eventually those little institutions of gathering became large institutions of gathering and one of the one of the scholars of coffee talks about the fact that before the emergence of coffee as a social beverage if we were to really think about where were gathering spaces it was the it was the mosque it was the madrasa and it was the markaz it was the uh, it was the souk mm-hmm. uh, these were the places where people gathered or in their own homes in their own divans in their in their own living spaces um taverns appeared from time to time um sometimes in great numbers sometimes in lesser numbers in islamic civilization but those were disruptive in a very very different way because 
um, uh, on the outward, they were, you know, from the from a point of view of religious authority, they were haram. So there were always sort of speakeasies or, or undergrounds. And of course, mm-hmm. there's a really interesting story about alcohol culture in Muslim civilizations uh, as as well. Mm-hmm. But the emergence of coffee allowed for the establishment of the coffee house, of the kafehane, of mm-hmm. the place that you gathered to drink. And for me, that's the re- that is the real revolution it, that happened socially. Because now there was a place where people could talk. And that's the revolution which got exported to Vienna and to Venice and to London and to Paris. Well, and yeah, so tr- maybe introduce us to that history because it was, on, it was very recently that Europe actually took on coffee. It was in the Muslim world for hundreds of years. So its arrival to Europe is, is, is more recent. How does that so happen? So you have... Yeah, so you have coffee for maybe maybe two hundred years in in the in the Muslim world, but of course, with the encounter between um, rising Western empires and Muslim empires, there of course was so much cultural exchange, intellectual exchange, and of course, coffee was in that exchange. So you find by actually the or by by the by the early sixteen hundreds, you uh, coffee beginning to appear in parts of Europe. By the mid-1600s, the late 1600s, you see the emergence of coffee houses in places like Vienna and and London in particular. You know, often we talk about Vienna or Venice or the Italian experience of coffee as being quintessentially European. But London was really the great city of coffee. Mm. And and that was because, you know, there was trade between the Ottoman Empire and, um, and the British Isles. In fact, the the first people to bring coffee over to uh, the United Kingdom, what we call the United Kingdom now, the British Isles, in a in a significant way, was uh, was uh, a fellow named Pasquale Rosé, who was we think maybe Greek or Italian. He was in service to an English businessman who was doing trade with the with the Ottoman Turks, and they had lived in um, they had lived in what would now be the Greek islands, but Ottoman territory at the time, and they had returned back to London. And part of the deal that Pasquale Rosé had with his, um, with, with basically the person he was indentured to was let, let us bring back coffee beans because they both loved coffee and they both loved Ottoman coffee. He said, let us bring back coffee beans and let us begin uh, a little business. Let me, let me try it out. And so on a little lane off the corner hill in the old city of London, there you can still see a, a beautiful blue plaque which is now in front of a, 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 a pub. And it says, here established the first coffee house by Pasquale Rosé. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it wasn't even a coffee house, it was a coffee shack. Mm-hmm. He would get the beans, he would roast them on an open fire, uh, he would crush them, and then he would boil them. And then he would serve this, what became known in, in sort of London literary society initially, as the bitter Mohammedan gruel. Mm. And he would serve cups of bitter Mohammedan gruel. And this, this bitter gruel became so popular because it was like nothing people had tasted before. It didn't make them intoxicated. In fact, it made them sharper. Mm. They wanted to talk late into the night. And in fact, one of the first major campaigns against coffee was, was and, and the first major campaign of prohibition, even before the campaign against the prohibition of alcohol, was by a group of women who, during the 1700s, had a petition against coffee. And they use language that is profoundly anti-Muslim, anti-Turk, anti-East, 
saying that coffee is uh, this, this, they, they describe it as a Turkish vixen, mm. as a Turkish princess who has taken over the minds of our men and the hearts of our men, and they've fallen in love with this thing. And, and so there's this sensuality uh, of the East that is dangerous and associated with coffee. But at its height, there was a coffee shop in London for every 140 citizens, thousands of cafes, and each was a local institution. And these cafes were remarkable. You know, one of the cafes was... was was uh, was Lloyd's, and that Lloyd's became Lloyd's of London, which became the first insurance company and one of the first banks. Mm. It was in coffee houses that news services started. It was like, in coffee houses that newspapers started. There was cafes, uh, city, and I you can just imagine this. You know, I close my eyes and I can see it. Where one to enter one of these cafes, one would have to recite a fresh line of poetry or give a new piece of news, mm. and it was fairly democratic because. If you came into a cafe and they said, what news do you bring? And if you gave a piece of news that perhaps was all, had already been heard or that wasn't, that wasn't juicy enough, the mm. clientele, they would say, no, no, don't let him in. <laughs> or they would say, come on in. And one of the other amazing things about the cafe was the, the rules. Um, you know, in, the, in the old Indian cafes, particularly in the Bombay cafes and some of the cafes in southern India, uh, there's still you can still see pictures when you go in and there's rules. There's rules of the cafe, you know, no spitting, no farting, uh, <laughs> no indecent noises, uh, you know, uh, keep convivial, you know, don't don't steal the cutlery. There's all these rules on the wall. <laughs> so one of the rules of, 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 of these old London cafes was that no conversation was a private conversation. Mm. So if you and I were having this conversation, then anyone could walk in and sit next to us and join in. What are you talking about? And jump in with their opinions. It was, uh, you know, Habermas calls it the great, um, the great democratic public square. It was, the, it, was that, it was that public space. And, you know, when you think about a cafe, say in Baghdad or, or, or Halab or Basra or, or Damascus or, or Istanbul, think about the, the, the men who were coming into that space they were of different ranks and different classes. And European travelers were shocked because there was no such institutions in Europe. There was no places where rich and poor, uh, working class and merchant and wealthy could gather in the same place where stories were told and scholars discussed and games were played and music was, was enjoyed. That's the spirit of the cafe. And, and that takes a hold on Europe very, very quickly. And of course, there's, there's what I call the dark side to coffee, which is a coffee's association with global empire, with global trade, how coffee eventually travels to South America and, and for a time is linked with slavery hmm. and the production of coffee with, with, the, with the exploitation and the violence uh, that, is, that, is, that is slavery. Um, and this, this is part of, part of what makes up, the, makes up the, the, whole, the whole story. And in some ways, it's, it's, um, it's encouraging that we have friends like Mukhtar al-Khanshali. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's other pioneers around the world who are really trying to revive not just the history of coffee, but the craft of the production of coffee in Muslim lands like the Yemen or in places like Mindanao in the southern Philippines. Or, it, I mean, the... the coffee scene, as you know, in Indonesia is, is, is wildly amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but all these places, you know, most of these places, 
are recipients of coffee from an, from an original source and they've, they've made it their own. Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff is fascinating. And it's really beautiful to me that it started as a tool to draw one near to the divine and mm. to, you know, because interestingly enough, across religious traditions, one thing I found is that, you know, you find with the Buddhists, you find definitely in Islam, especially amongst the Sufis and, and many other traditions, there's an idea that the early morning, the last third of the night, the time before mm-hmm. sunrise is a special time to awaken, to, to become enlightened. And so, you know, of course, what better way to wake up than <laughs> coffee in your cup, you know? And <laughs> exactly, so exactly. if the Sufis found out, hey, we can, it's easier for us to do our night vigil, you know, to mm-hmm. do our prayers and our meditations and our chanting if we, if we imbibe this beverage. And mm. that's so beautiful. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that all words for coffee that I'm aware of in every language, um, they come from Arabic, kahwa, except for yes. Ethiopian, which it's uh, buni. Is it buni or buna? Yes, that's right. That's right. And so, <laughs> you know, because we have kahve, cafe, coffee, yes. uh, you know, Kopi in Indonesia, it's Kopi. Yes, <laughs> but it all right. comes from kahwa, which means I think you were the one who first told me this. It means the invigorating wine in Arabic. Yeah, and and, and the the words. There's a whole language that that the Muslims created around coffee. So one of the one of the terms that they that the uh, the early historians of the coffee used was this term called markaha, uh, which is the feeling of sprightliness and well-being and elevation of, of, of the spirit that one feels when one imbibes a good cup of coffee. And, and I've always found that really interesting because, you know, there, there, there's, this, there's this thing among baristas that sometimes I'll talk about the God shot, you know, mm. uh, especially baristas who work with, with, with espresso at a very, very sophisticated level. Um, you know, not just the measuring and the weighing and the temperatures, but the equipment and the machines and the, the milliseconds of timing. And it's all to get that shot of coffee, that shot of espresso, um, that when you taste it, uh, it is so stimulating, uh, so flavorful. It's without bitterness, but it encompasses your mouth with the range of, um, of tastes that you just have to kind of, you kind of roll your eyes and we would kind of say Allah, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the God shot. And, and in fact, you know, I, I almost keep a diary of coffee experiences and, and there's very few, there's very few experiences. There's, I've had some amazing coffee experiences, but there's only a handful that I would say approach that kind of almost transcendent moment mm-hmm. where you had it and you had to close your eyes and and it was you had to appeal to spiritual language because there's no other language that can describe it. It's not just a good cup or a tasty cup. It's an Allah cup. Mm. And 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 you know I can remember those moments, and I can also remember the as you said, I mean so beautifully, it's the ihsan of the barista at that moment, and watching them and how much care they took, much beyond the amount I was paying for it. And in fact, in fact, I remember. The first time I had that experience was um, with uh, with my wife Farina, and we were um, it was before our son was born, and 
uh, you know, we'd been at a market in East London, and we had this there was this lovely little cafe. It was called the the Taste of Bitter Love, hmm. and it was uh, it was an Australian couple who ran it. And it was a little hole in the wall on, on Hackney Road here in East London. And, you know, we went and we, we, we actually both had maybe a flat white or something. And then the barista who we'd gotten to know over several months came over with two espresso cups. And he said, I've just been working on something and I just want to, I just want you guys to taste it. And t- tell, me, tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was Farina who took that, you know, took, took a sip of it first. And she just went really quiet. And it was that kind of pregnant pause. Mm-hmm. And then I took it. And I, and I I fell into the same. It was that moment where you're like, mashallah, mm-hmm. this is something special. It's like nothing I've ever tasted before. And it's so wholly satisfying. And I think we just sat in silence mm-hmm. as we had it. And then afterwards, it was like, what was that? That was something else. And I think, you know, it's... Um, I mean, as, as an artist, to be... Um, I imagine that the most powerful moments, and, you know, I've seen you recite your poetry, perform, I've had the honor, you know, of interviewing you, uh, you know, during a performance and and to see that happen. But I know there's, there's some nights where you've said a poem where silence is the only appropriate response Mm. with, where it's a moment of transcendence, isn't it? Mm. Um, And I think in any art and, and coffee is an art, if, if there's a moment of transcendence, it's that place where, you know, our, our Christian friends have, uh, have, a, um, have a lovely concept. It's from Celtic Christianity uh, about the thin places. Mm. They say that there's certain places in the world which are thin places, mm. uh, which are places where the, the fabric between the seen and the unseen, the natural and the supernatural, the human and the divine are so thin that is translucent you can you can you can't see it clearly but you can feel it you can almost touch it beautiful and i think art is that way too i think art creates thin spaces and of course we know that god is with us and surround us and sustaining us but in our human perception of the divine and of transcendence there are moments where poetry art culture creates the thin space Absolutely. and and i won't lie i think i think a beautiful cup of coffee filled with with markaha creates a thin space where we're through the different a different experience this time the, the experience of taste and of smell and color that we're almost taken to that level and i and i and i think that's in a way the the, the noble possibilities of 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 of, our, of 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 art and culture mm. um and sometimes those thin spaces are created in the most unusual places isn't it things yeah. that we wouldn't think take us to that point that reduce us to tears that that cause prayers to come from our our mouths are sometimes things that we wouldn't expect that to happen and i think that's the that's the alchemy of 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 culture that's the alchemy of uh of of art because we don't know what piece of art what what cultural production will take us to that to that point and sometimes mm. it surprises us sure yeah i mean and i mean absolutely and i think i i often think about the fact that plants are so central to human mm. culture. And mm. I think we, we can often forget. And, you know, they have the like hierarchy of needs. We need food and drink. We need clothing and shelter. Um, mm. And these are important needs, obviously. You know. But once we fulfill those, 
Um, I mean, definitely we, we need relationship and meaning and things like that. But we also fundamentally as human beings crave to have our state altered. We crave yes. to, to be transported, as you say, into a different state. And if we, if we look mm-hmm. around the world at, at you know, experiences, someone you know, goes, if you think about like primal humanity around a campfire and someone stands up and starts you know, either singing or dancing or telling a story or reciting a poem or reciting a poem that is a story, an epic poem, you know, and this transports everyone in the space. And part of it is, you know, there's the, the fire and so the shadow and the light and the darkness. And then there's what is, be, what is happening. And, you know, after, like plants, there's many plants which assist in facilitating a transformation where we all can move into a, a different space. And, mm. you know, it's interesting from shamanic tribes in, in the Amazon jungle to, you know, all the way up, you know, through any other place you could imagine, there, different plants are central to every single culture. And it's interesting. And mm-hmm. certain cultures try to regulate plant, the, the plants that are permissible or acceptable or the way that they're used and things of that nature. Um, and I think mm. about, obviously, tea is so central. Coffee is so central. Um, obviously, mm. alcohol is so central to, to many human cultures and the kind of global culture now. Mm. You know, as someone who doesn't drink alcohol, you know, and I think we, you know, most Muslims can share, the, you know, the fact that you pray is, you know, whatever especially in modern liberal mm-hmm. thing, like you pray, whatever, we all do our different thing. But, but alcohol yeah. is so central to social, you know, socialization, to business meetings, to, to friendship, yeah. to, to yeah. after work, we're getting a drink after this and that. Oh, hey, I'd love to meet you. Oh, yeah. you're interested in, in, in dating a member of the opposite sex. I meet you at a bar, at a restaurant. <laughs> like if you're not drinking alcohol, it totally, you know, sets you apart. Um, it is disruptive. It's it, disruptive to the, to the, to, to the, yeah, the social, the social fabric. Sometimes. But it's interesting <laughs> about about that. And so coffee, you know, for me, when I'm, for instance, I've found, and of course, you know, a poem comes when it comes. You can't, you know, you can't force it. But there are certain things you can do to put yourself in that state of receptivity. And for me, the best time is in the morning. And it's for me if I walk, like going for a walk. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, walk into a cafe, sitting down, drinking coffee and reading. Reading, you know, mm. like a work of the great spiritual masters, whether it's poetry or whether it's literature, whether it's philosophy or, you know, things like that. Stories. And then this will spark something. So it's a mix of the kind of what I'm reading and what I'm drinking and the fact that I've walked and I've, you know, breathed the fresh air. And then, then a poem will come. So I found like that's the way, like coffee plus fresh air plus reading a good book. That's how to spark a poem for me. You know? I, love, I, I, I love what you said about plants. And I love what you said about that, that engagement that we have with, with, with you know, yeah, with, that, with, with the kind of the, the natural world and the vegetal world around us. Mm. Um, you know, my, 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 my wife does some volunteer work at a, at a cancer hospice, just, just nearby. It's kind of an East London institution, St. Joe's. And, you know, if you walk into the garden there, you know, there are certain plants 
which literally people are attracted to. Mm. Vines, greenery, flowers. And there is something that it's almost like there's a secret in them. Mm. There's, there's something, you know, there's a secret there. And that the heart is attracted to. And there's certain places in that garden, whenever I've gone, I've always noticed that there's certain places where people always sit. And there's other places that they sit less. And and what you just said just just kind of uh, sparked in me that that thought that you know there must be something in those places mm. the proximity of the plants the 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 aesthetics but also something about the quality of the natural world around us mm. um, and of course you know we know from West African traditions that that you know that that the plant world is alive with the supernatural absolutely um, you know the, the the plant in Indonesia you know we often hear about the old stories, you know, from places like Kalimantan and, and you know, the, the forests of, of, of Java, that, that, that the spirits reside amongst the leaves and the trees and within nature yeah, itself. And, and I'm, I, you know, I think, I think some Puritans might be quick, quick to dismiss that as superstition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we know that the vastness of God's creation and the, and the, and the vastness of the unseen world, which which outweighs uh, the world that we see, I think forces us to be humble. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and even science is proving is what the you know, traditional cultures always knew is that, for instance, you know, they, they figure out that specific plants, if they're being eaten by a predatory creature, you know, um, that the plants nearby will somehow receive communication from the plant that's being eaten and will they will chemically change so that their leaves become bitter so that they won't be eaten. That's so intriguing. And, it's incredible. And I was listening to a that's Radio incredible. Lab podcast, I think. I can't remember all the details, but it was about it was about the specific root structures and forests and how they communicate and they find which which ones of the trees are sick or in need of specific nutrients and the roots will actually like pass it on to the next tree. Like one tree is like, I got enough, pass it on. You know, so science is just starting to realize the extent to which, you know, the the, the idea of consciousness and even who's conscious, who's not conscious um, and what is conscious and what's not conscious is still, you know, a question which is up for grabs. I mean, we don't even understand what consciousness is and what creates consciousness. So, Absolutely. And, you know, like I well, remember, I remember reading Ibn Arabi, uh, Journey to the Lord of Power, where he talks about his, his, his spiritual ascension and his awakening. And he said, at first, all the keys and secrets to the mineral kingdom were revealed to me. And it was mm. so powerful and so beautiful that it was like, I want to stop here and just be in awe of this. He said, but a voice said, don't stop, focus on Allah. And so I kept going, and then the keys to the plant kingdom were all revealed to me, and I saw and understood it all in, in, the, in the divine sight. And, but, and it was so powerful, even more powerful than the mineral kingdom, and I wanted to, part of me wanted to just observe that and just be in awe of that and be in the ecstasy of that awareness, but something said, keep going. And then it was to the animal kingdom, and then all the way up to the divine presence, you know. And so, and you know, when I, I went to the Amazon jungle a few years ago and I visited uh, a, f- a few tribes and what I heard from mm. the, the Shipibo tribe, they actually talked about this idea that when you go to become a, a shaman, 
what you do is you go in seclusion for a period of months and you only eat a specific plant for months until the spirit of that plant comes to you and teaches you its song. And then the song that you, were te- that you learned through this plant, which is not in Spanish, it's not in an, any indigenous language, it's in a plant language. And that, then you sing that plant language during the ceremonies to the people that need healing. And that song that the plants taught you will actually take you on your vision quest, on your journey. And it will, it will take you where you need to go to heal. So, yeah, plants, I mean, it's amazing. But to bring it back to coffee, on the other hand, you mentioned the dark side of coffee. And that, you know, that is something. But even on the, not, not as dark as that, but still, as much as coffee is a great tool for contemplation and, and for conversation and for art, it is also a great tool for capitalism, you know, because yeah, it is. It, 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 it'll get you going and it will keep you going. Whereas... Other things, other plants, like, you know, of course, in, in the West, there's all these debates about marijuana. It's really not good for mm-hmm. capitalism. And so that's why there's been this pushback the whole time, because it also makes you think, and it'll just make you be like, yeah, why would I do that? I mean, Cat Williams, the comedian, he has this great line where he's like, you know, you'd be worried, about, you know, you're stressed out about things in life. Like, for instance, you can't pay your, your light bill. And he said, but you just smoke a joint. And all of a sudden, you'll look at the world differently. You say, I don't need lights. I can light some candles. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, there's just a certain, like, thing about that plant, which it doesn't help capitalism at all. It'll make you be like, wait, why are we all working so hard when we can, you know what I mean? So, yeah, there's certain plants that it work. Encourage, it encourages lateral thinking. Exactly. <laughs> it, People it, call it, it, it laziness. But, <laughs> but I think it's more nuanced than that. <laughs> I, I, I think it, I think it probably I think it probably is as well, um, and you know I, I I I mean I think I think for for where where I am right now I think these kinds of conversations are vital, but they're also I think they're vital spiritual conversations. I think I think sometimes I feel that 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 our conversations about spirituality within Muslim contexts are are deeply strained. You know I I, I feel like they're they're, they're not just they're not just strained, but they're constrained. And in a way, we, for some reason, we have allowed ourselves to become divorced or separate from ancient wisdoms that have, in civilizational terms, already fed um, the great rivers of Muslim thought and civilization. And and somehow, you know, understanding other spiritual traditions honoring them, seeing their, their, their wisdom, even at times immersing ourselves in them with our own authenticity intact is something that is really frowned upon. Um, and I think has become a barrier to, um, to expressing our, our humanity. And, and if, um, if the Prophet came to teach us anything, it was to connect with the source of all things so that we could be fully human because that's all we can be in this life. We can aspire to the fullness of our, of our humanity. And how can we do that? If, uh, if we are not open, respectful, um, humble, 
before traditions and civilizations, particularly indigenous traditions and civilizations that came before us. Mm. You know, we, we sort of exclude, we exclude ourselves from them because we see them as, as primitive or, or, or backward or, or kind of pre-modern or pre-formed. And yet what, what we've just been talking about is that these civilizations through their own journeys, their fitra, their practices, they understood things as a, at a much deeper and profound and actually, you know, in equilibrium with with nature and creation far, far more than we than we do now. And I think this is part of the, the curse of modernity. But also, I think it's just it's the curse of um, it's, it's the curse of religious chauvinism. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I, I always tell th- people like I always tell people like if you want to, you know, it's important to study the Sirah, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but it's also difficult to understand the dynamics of tribe and, and the society because it's so different from ours. It's like almost like we can't penetrate it because it's 1,400 years ago in Arabia and it's so different, like a, almost a pre-literate society where people, you know, and the, of desert nomads, like it's very difficult. But I always tell people, if you, if you want to kind of get a window into it, read Black Elk Speaks. Understand mm. what was written about and by Native Americans you know, just a few hundred years ago, and also for American people particularly, but I think Western people in general, there's a, also a type of an affinity for the First Nations. And it was, it's so recent, and so much has been written about like the tribes and how they were structured and how life was, and that, that contact between two worlds of kind of, you know, the, the modern, industrial, capitalistic, um, post-enlightenment Europe with this, you know, of course we're not going to say primitive, but primal, ancient, you, you know, in many, pre-modern tribal society, indigenous society. And, and it was so recent, and there's so much that's written about it that there's a lot that you can can, that can translate if you understand how life was and their relationship to each other and their relationship to nature and how society was structured, then it will give you a lot of insights and for me it helped me understand the Sira much better. But I wanted to uh, you trans- know that, that's, yeah, so, that's really ahead. that's really that, yeah sorry that I, that's a really important point. And I think in a way right now it's a very important moment in places like Canada and the United States mm-hmm. where there's almost a reemergence of a consciousness amongst amongst people about indigenous culture and indigenous history. And I think this is actually a, a moment for us, a moment of humility. Um, and it's also a moment where, where we can genuinely, uh, you know, so we lower our heads and say, we have, we have been at fault. Mm. We have wronged the, 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 the ancestors and the elders who part- populated this land, who first came to this, these, these lands. And I think this is the time for humility. And I've often felt that even amongst our religious scholars, you know, um, in Canada, there's been, there's been incredible um, uh, indigenous movements to, to educate and for people to experience and to understand the incredible history of indigenous people and the, the depth of their spirituality and culture and myth and language, but also to understand the great trauma that empire, co- colonialism, racism, um, prejudice 
inflicted uh, upon what you know are, are are called the First Nations. And I think a big gap for me is that our religious scholars, in particular, and and those who those who you know those who talk Islam. I think there's a need for them. <laughs> you know, I've often felt like I, I, I wish we, we have a chance where, where, where scholars and would-be scholars would sit down at the feet of tribal elders mm-hmm. um, in the places that they live and say, teach us. And mm-hmm. we're here not to, we're not here for an interfaith conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not here to talk about Islam and indigenous religion. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. We're not, we don't even have the right to have that conversation mm-hmm. yet. But right now, we need to sit, we need to sit at your feet, mm-hmm. and we need to understand the spirituality that came from this place. Because until we understand that, our our place as Muslims on this land will never be whole. Forget Islamophobia. Forget you know the forty fifth president. Forget mm-hmm. any of that. Mm-hmm. You know we will not be spiritually whole until we honor the first peoples of the of these places. Because in our sacred language. God brought them to these places. Mm-hmm. God facilitated their spirituality, their language, their 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 symbol, their myth. This is not separate from Allah. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is all this is all connected to Allah. Mm-hmm. And we and we and, and I think I I mean I feel I feel ashamed actually that, that I grew up in a place like Canada, and that you know th- this realization came came so late. That what was missing in our own education, in my own education, whether it was at school or at the mosque, mm-hmm. what was missing that I did not recognize, I did not, um, I wasn't aware, I, I wasn't humble before before the first cultures and the first spiritualities and the and the first peoples, and I and I think that's a very important part of of what I think the future needs to hold for us. Mashallah, that's beautiful, and it reminds me, um, I, maybe it was about six months back, I was in Seattle. And uh, Wasat, which is a beautiful organization in Seattle, they did an event at the Duwamish uh, Longhouse. The Duwamish is, mm-hmm. is the tribe that occupies what is now Seattle. And actually Chief Seattle, his name is Chief Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle is named after the chief of the Duwamish, <clears throat> if I remember right. correctly. And so we had a gathering with the Muslim community and um, the, du- the Duwamish. And Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah was there, one of the leading scholar, uh, Muslim American scholars, as you know, and uh, many uh, indigenous elders and young people. Um, and it was really powerful and profound. And it was really amazing to see Dr. Omar in that vi- environment because he really didn't want to speak. And he, like he, when he spoke, all he said, all he said was, "I really don't want to speak. I just want to listen and learn." Mm-hmm. And he was really moved to tears in a way that I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time with him, but I've never seen him that choked up, actually. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you're saying that, I, I, alhamdulillah, that there's small efforts in certain communities which are really leading the way in this, and, and as you say. And, you know, basically, mm-hmm. I'd like to transition now into speaking a little bit about your work, because speaking of people that are torchbearers and, 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 and leading the way in the Muslim communities, particularly in the West... Maybe for those that aren't aware of, of, of what you're doing, uh, you know, we'll get into what you what you have planned in the coming years. But I'd love to just hear a little bit about your work with Radical Middle Way and other endeavors that you've been doing in the UK and beyond 
especially for people that aren't aware of, you know, what you've been doing in the last kind of, you know, 15 years? <laughs> it's, it's a tough one uh, for me, Sidi, and I'll tell you why. Because in some ways, um, you know, I think, I think like yourself and, and so many of us who are, who are in these spaces, we, we almost thrive on juggling <laughs> 10 projects at a time. You know, we're, 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 on, we're on this high wire act of, 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 of projects and initiatives and conversations. And I think probably for the last 20 or 25 years, I've, I've, I've felt that way. And I'm from Toronto, Canada. Originally, I was, um, uh, you know, I was sort of schooled in, a, in, a, in, a, in an activist family. My father and mother both came from from Islamic activist backgrounds, originally from Pakistan, but were deeply embedded in the in the Muslim community uh, in in Toronto. Um, oh, you know, since the mid nineteen nineties, uh, I was very, I think, actively involved in the emergence of what has now become the the Dean Intensive and the the, the the traditional Islam or the revival of of classical and traditional Islamic education. Toronto was a very important city and. We had luminaries like the um, city Nazim Baksh, the you know award-winning journalist from from Toronto, and many others, who I think were mentors to us, and also you know provided opportunities for us to to, to really deeply engage in communities through the lens of reviving and facilitating Islamic learning. And I was very lucky in the mid nineteen nineties to meet um, Hajj Fouad Mahdi and and his incredible publication Q News, and that changed my life. You know, I'd, I'd already been dabbling in writing and journalism, and I started working freelance for, for Q News, and um, in the late 1990s, made a, uh, late 1990s, excuse me, became a columnist for the uh, one of Canada's largest newspapers, the Toronto Star. So we were doing this work of kind of, of, kind of trying to revive Islamic, classical Islamic education within contemporary contexts, at the same time commenting and reporting on on issues of, of, of spirituality and, and um, through, through Muslim eyes. And then, of course, at Q News, we were kind of exploring the breadth of not just the British Muslim experience, but the global Muslim experience with a journalistic lens. Um, during that time, I became a history and drama teacher. And so I, my, my, my love for drama and, 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 and art was sort of merged with, with, a, uh, with, a, professional, uh, with a professional calling. And I remember one of the first really interesting cultural projects that I was involved in was way back in 1997, when, you know, in the flush of being exposed to teachers like Hamza Yusuf and Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad and others, we, we, there was a group of us who was kind of, who were kind of inspired to, to take that to the cultural level to see, well, what, what's the implications of traditional Islam, as we were calling it then, on culture? And where are the nodes of, 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 of cultural expression that come from this place of Tasawwuf and, and love for God and love for the Prophet? So we organized the first public concert of living spiritual traditions in Toronto. Mm. And, and, you know, it was incredible because it was through that that I, 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 I had a relationship and continued to have a relationship with the Tariqa uh, Khalwati Jarrahi order, mm. um, with, with Somali Qadris, Sufis, with with you know people from the Horn of Africa, from southern from southern Africa, South Africa, um, from Malaysia and Indonesia, we were able to bring incredible voices, and they were all in Toronto. And and you know part of it was wow, I didn't even know they existed in Toronto <laughs> because we weren't in those circles, but we brought them on stage. And I remember it was a magnificent night, which show, which in a way was was a demonstration that 
that we as activists and people doing community work have to be engaged in 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 being uh, also kind of uh, as as one of my friends often says to be archaeologists, right? Mm-hmm. That we got to go and dig up because it's living and this is not old stuff. This is stuff that's there and it's happening in communities. We're not going to know about it unless we're there. We can't be rarefied. We can't be suburban. We can't we can't be um, commentators from afar. Uh, we can't merely exist on our campuses. We got to be out there with people. And it was that sense, and I learned that from Fouad and his his incredible partner and wife, Homer Khan, that you got to be engaged in community. And you know, the nine eleven was a was a moment, um, I think, for all of us, where we began to rethink and consider the work that we were doing. And my journalism work grew after that. And Alhamdulillah, that that led to eventually coming to the United Kingdom after Farina and I got married, and I met Farina through Q News. Um, and, and for the last sort of uh, 14 years here in the UK, I've been working as a journalist uh, over the last six or seven years, primarily as a radio journalist, making documentaries for BBC Radio, um, the, the, ch- the UK channels and, and the World Service, offering spiritual commentary um, on, on, on sort of contemporary issues for, for the morning, one of the morning breakfast shows. Uh, here and, and that's allowed me, in a way, to be very blessed to be able to explore things on, you know, kind of mainstream media platforms in a way that kind of engages not just Muslim audiences, but actually seeks to engage wider audiences in, in, in issues that that have Muslim flavor, but I believe that are incredibly relevant and, and, and human. Mm-hmm. And you know, in in the early two thousands, uh, being actively involved with Q News, which was this incredible publication, you know. That, that was really the first really independent, um, cutting-edge, controversial, edgy Muslim publication that looked at current affairs and culture. I remember when I came across Q News in the mid-1990s, I was, I was so intrigued that, that they had movie reviews of, of kind of mainstream movies that were in the theater, but they were written in a way that, that, you know, it was the world through Muslim eyes, and that excited me in a way that Nothing I'd read had excited me before. You know, there was this kind of like, we're here, we're immersed in culture, we're swimming, you know, in our contemporary context. We're not segregated or separate from them. And we're going to, and anything that we see is fair game for our analysis and, and for our views. And, you know, after the 7 7 attacks here in, here in London, we, we took that spirit um, of connecting the contemporary and the classical of seeing the world through Muslim eyes. Um, and with the organization called the Radical Middle Way, which, which um, Hajj Fouad founded, and we were part of that founding group behind it, was really to try in that period of intense confusion and pressure on Muslim communities to connect religious scholarship with the grassroots, to offer answers and perspectives, create space, safe spaces for conversation, and to really bring the best of our traditions against the worst interpretations that people were offering of them. Mm. And, and over, the last, uh, over the last sort of 12 years, Radical Middle Way's work has spanned the United Kingdom, Indonesia, Pakistan, Sudan, Mali, Morocco, Malaysia, uh, and even farther afield. And it's meant the production of documentaries and a lot of content. It, it meant also for us to engage with culture and, and you know, in, in the... In the mid-2000s, um, we were able to organize the first urban music and, 
and Muslim hip hop tours of the UK. Of course, hip hop and, and urban music and and from 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 Muslim cultural producers has been part and parcel of the DNA of uh, of hip hop in the United Kingdom since the 1980s. But I think it was the first time that that I think a kind of a Muslim organization or movement took it seriously and said, mm -hmm. no, this is a vehicle for deep spiritual, political, social conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and to allow artists, particularly women, to perform as, as not just equals to men, but often as superior to men, as Poetic Pilgrimage has shown us over the years, <laughs> uh, that the artistry is, is kind of blows anything out of the water. It's not about gender, it's about art. Mm -hmm. And it's about the power of what they do and and to give those platforms and to and and to literally see hundreds, thousands of young people coming to these concerts, staying till one or two in the morning, speaking to artists, talking about what was on their hearts, you know, people even becoming Muslim through that um, experience was powerful. And and once again, a, a clear indication of the of the importance of an investment in culture. So the radical middle way was involved in a lot of cool stuff and. You know, and it was also, also a difficult time. We were engaged with government because we had government grants. And in 2010, 2011, um, alhamdulillah, that relationship with, with officialdom came to an end as, as policies changed and became much more, much more tight uh, around Muslim communities. And we knew we couldn't be part of that. So we've tried to continue some of that creative work in, in various ways and, and with various partnerships. And I think for me, um, you know, that work globally uh, built on that work in the 1990s with with traditional classical Islam, but also that we engage with scholars from around the world, and and the importance of of the of of the methodology was this: religious leadership is vital um, to have at the table, and religious leadership not just at the high end, not just from the Azhars and the Barawiyins and the you know the Darul Ulums, but religious leadership at the grassroots is vital to not just engage with, but to have a voice and not be treated as something parochial and not be treated as something um, that you can dismiss. But as important as that was civic leadership and not the civic leadership of, of, of big organizations, the ISNAs and the Muslim councils, then they have their role, but civic leadership on the ground, that was vital and important. But you know, there was a third element, and I thought, you know, kind of the, the, the you know, the, the, the third, and I think for me now, the most important element today is cultural leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've ignored. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about political leadership and civic leadership. We've talked, and, and sometimes even, unfortunately, I feel now overemphasized religious leadership. Mm -hmm. But where is the cultural leadership? I believe people like you, you know, Sukina and Munir from Poetic Pilgrimage, people like Amir Suleiman, um, the, and, and so many others. Uh, my friend Asad Ali Jafri, uh, the Knight Sisters in New York, Leila Bahrain, the incredible photographer. Um, writers, artists, cultural producers, curators, exhibitors, programmers. There is an emerging community uh, of cultural leaders. They've always been there. Now we can identify them in some ways more clearly. What is the role of cultural leadership in the future of Islam in America and Canada and the United Kingdom around the world? And how can we now, and I think about this a lot, is that what can we institutionally 
strategically be doing to enhance cultural leadership and to create strategic thinking amongst cultural leaders and to impress. Uh, I wouldn't say even impress. I would go one step further to demand that the future of our communities rests on the interplay between civic and, and, and civil activism, religious leadership and cultural leadership. And, 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 and it's in this nexus, this engine, and imagination and story needs to be a part of it. This is where the future of our communities is going to be decided. Um, and this is where the future of our communities, I, I believe there's great, there's great hope. And, and, you know, having been engaged in sort of, sort of, you know, partnership with communities, I see the incredible work that women and men are doing every day in street by street, you know, in community centers, through community institutions that are taking care of, you know, the most, the most devastating problems, uh, social and economic problems that they're, that they're, that they're, that they're dealing with. Um, but I also know that surrounding that there needs to be a cultural water in which we swim, mm. um, that helps us contextualize, understand, give hope. And, and I, I think, I think this is the cultural leadership is the missing link. And if anything that I see in terms of my work going forward with, with people and friends like, like, like Asad and Chicago and, and other places, uh, people in other places is, is this focus on culture. And on cultural production and on cultural leadership. Yeah, this is um, beautiful. In many ways, I feel like Mashallah. 20 years of work and 20 years of friendships and, and 20 years of learning with our scholars has led me to that. And I'll, I'll share something with you that that um, Habib Ali uh, Al Jifri, um, who is one of our teachers and who I who I love, and I think I have a special love for him <laughs> um, for many reasons. Uh, we named our son. Abdurrahman Ali Zainul Abidin <laughs> and Ali Zainul Abidin because of course of the of the uh, of the great grandson of the of the of the Prophet. Uh, but also because it's Habib Ali's name. <laughs> and and so for me, Habib Ali has been has been a very been very important, I think, in in shaping my my own sense of my my my, my spirituality and my my place within within Islam. But Habib uh, Ali's in a conversation a few years back, actually, now, we were talking about the work that, that the Radical Middle Way had done. And, and, you know, whenever he's in the UK, he takes an incredible interest in, in grassroots effort and activity. Mm. And um, after we had described our work, you know, he was kind of quiet and he said, culture. He said, this, this work, he says, the cultural work that you spoke about, he said, this is the work that requires attention. He said, this is, this is the work that you should focus on. He says, this is the work that others are doing and need to do. And I was taken by that because, you know, he, he listened to the whole thing. And there was something real, you know, when, you know, when the Mashiach gets serious. I mean, you know that, you know that, you know, you've had that experience many times, I'm sure, Sidney, that <laughs> there's this moments when our teachers get serious, you know, um, where it's, there's a conviviality, but for a moment, it's it's no longer about it's no longer relational. It's now what I'm saying is a teaching, mm. and it felt like that. It felt very serious, mm. and I think that that I think the best of our teachers have always known that and have always seen that. And I think the best of our teachers 
have always given us space, right? Mm -hmm. To explore what culture means because culture is messy. It's not always going to fit within the fiqh. It's not always going to fit within within neat theological or jurisprudential frames. Mm-hmm. And maybe in some circles it's controversial to say that, but I think it's just reality. Mm-hmm. Culture is messy. Cultural production is messy. It can affirm or it can cause fitna. Mm-hmm. It can be disruptive or it can be building. And mm-hmm. sometimes in its disruption, it builds. Sure. So there's all kinds of interesting paradoxes in in cultural production. And I think the best of our scholars understand that. And, and you know what? The best of our religious leadership says, work through it, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know Allah and his messenger. Work through it. Mm-hmm. Work through it. And I, and I, I mean, I, I honor and respect that. Um, and, I, and, I, and I really, I mean, to those of our teachers who've given us that space, um, because we believe in scholarship and we believe in teachers and we believe in, in mentors because, because it's part of the nexus of what makes us who we are. And, and even though sometimes we, we disagree and we, mm-hmm. we, we kind of, you know, bristle a little bit and we push, mm-hmm. that's the role of the student. That's the role of the novice. That's that, that, that we push. Sure. And we've given, we've been given space to push. And so for me right now, this is a really important, I think we're at a really important moment. And there's a lot of amazing things happening around the world. You know, I look to people like Mark Gonzalez and others and the kind of work that they're doing and really shaping responses and political responses right now or, or even our, our, our activists um, who, who are doing so. This is all part of a great cultural project. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more uh, with, with what you're saying about culture. And it's so nice to hear. And that's one of the things I always appreciate that's refreshing about talking to you because um, you know, you're always thinking on that level of the individual, the communal, the societal, the the national, and the global, and at all times. And you know, with a you know, with a real concern for humanity as as a whole, but also for each individual and for the ummah, as well as you know, the Benny Adam, and of course that's. The, the blessing of being with true prophetic inheritors for teachers like some of the people you mentioned is that, you know, that's the prophetic inheritance is to have a Mohammedan heart that really is concerned about how can we maximize benefit and minimize harm for all beings, you know. Um, and mashallah, for, you, for, for everybody. Exactly, that's it. So you've been really generous with your time. I don't want to take too much more, but I know you're just about to embark on a, a, an exciting journey to my country, alhamdulillah, we welcome you. Um, so I just maybe you could just close with what you what you have in the pipeline moving forward, and um, you know some of the endeavors and, and initiatives that you'd like to devote yourself to moving forward. Um, uh, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm starting in just uh, in just a week, inshallah, a um, a fellowship at at, at, at Yale University. Um, you know, my 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 father. My father, he was born in British India and and came to Pakistan when he was when he was a, a young child, and we you know he 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 was an artist at heart really <laughs> a poet and a and a painter and a photographer and you know but he became an accountant <laughs> because he had to and you know I think growing up we were never forced to go into these kind of usual professions but I think my dad would jokingly always sort of 
complain, right, about his kids, about his underachieving kids. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of a running joke in our family. So I, I, I remember I, I applied for this fellowship at Yale, and I've had some friends who've been on this fellowship before, and they really encouraged me to apply. And, and alhamdulillah, I've been awarded it. And uh, and I remember calling home and saying, Abu, well, you know, alhamdulillah, I was, I was, I'm going to be going to Yale in the, in the autumn. And, and his response was, he laughed, he says, oh, it took a long time, but finally someone made it to the Ivy League in my family. You know? <laughs> um, but it's it's an exciting opportunity. The Yale World Fellowship, the Yale Greenberg World Fellowship, is um, is a really interesting program which brings together every year sixteen um, really remarkable uh, individuals from every corner of the planet together for five months at Yale to learn from each other, to mentor each other. But more than that, I think to pursue projects and, and intellectual and creative interests that they might not otherwise have a chance to because of life and work and circumstance. And this year, I'm, I'm really honored to be with this group of people that is diverse as Liberian and Lebanese and, and Japanese and Nigerian and people from Brazil and the Ukraine. And um, it's it's an exciting, exciting group of people. And, and I'm really honored to be part of them. And, 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 and basically what the fellowship asks us to do is to is to learn from one another. We are allowed to take courses and on, on campus and find our own kind of educational path for five months, but also to mentor some younger students, but in many ways also to, to organize events and programs and to, and to use the campus as a space to kind of work through ideas. Mm. And um, I mean, it's a blessing. And, 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 and you know, Sidi, because I, I know you've at various points in your life sort of unplugged and said, you know what, for my creativity, for my sanity, <laughs> I need space to think and to write and to consider. And I think in a way, this is, um, for me, this, this, the, the gift of this opportunity is time to think and to write and to consider and read. Um, it's a wonderful fellowship because the family is able to go. So Karina and, and my little one will be joining me in September. And, and I think what I want to get out of it is, is, is to challenge myself a little bit. And I think, and I think I just think to myself, you know, there, there, there's got to be points in your life where you've got to do things that are really kind of outside of, you know, your usual, the usual things that you do. And, I, and I'm really excited by the Yale, you know, theater, drama and, 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 and uh, dance program. I have a, I have a you know, a, a, an interest in drama. So I, I think, I think I'm, my heart is going there towards creative writing, but also actually um, in the divinity department towards... Um, particularly American theology and particularly black theology. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a great course uh, at, at Yale called James Baldwin in Theology. And, mm. and I, I hope to take it uh, with uh, I Am Not Your Negro and the, and the recent interest in Baldwin again. I think I've been rediscovering James Baldwin and finding his, his writings almost, almost Sufi. You know, mm. they're, they're mm. spiritual writing. Mm. And I, and I want to kind of immerse myself into some of those incredible stories, American stories that, that uh, we otherwise, or I certainly otherwise wouldn't have a chance to experience. And, and in terms of what I'd like to explore, I think this conversation about cultural leadership is on my mind, but more than that, it's on my heart. Mm. Um, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think I need to, for my own self, take some time and think about what cultural leadership means. What are the implications of it? But also to, to understand, and there's been a 
kind of a global group of us, dozens of us, and, and you know these people as well, Siddhi, who've been talking about this for years, who've been throwing around ideas, who've been arguing and debating and meeting on our own coin in various parts of the world and sitting down over cups of coffee and, 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 and food and talking about some of these issues and then going out and making culture, of course, is that, is that we need to understand the Muslim cultural ecosystem and we need to understand it in its broadest depth because I don't consider Muslim cultures a spectrum. You know, it's not about conservative and liberal. It's not about those extremes. That's the wrong way to look at culture. It's about ecosystems. It's about, it's about nodes where people are attracted to and what are the connections between those. And, and Muslimness as a spirituality but also as an identity is complex. And, you know, I, I, think, I think you probably find it, I find it all the time that Islam and Muslimness feeds into all kinds of people <laughs> and spaces and art where you'd least expect to find it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, think, I think for me, that is like a humbling to say that we cannot impose, um, you know, unrealistic definitions, but we can do nudges. We can be strategic about the Muslim cultural ecosystem. We can, we can, we can, we can invest in certain nodes of it. We can strengthen parts of it. Culture has a, is, is, is organic. And then I think that's where cultural leadership comes into play. That's where we need to be privileging in our public spaces cultural leadership as much as we do religious leadership or civic leadership. Um, and ultimately, you know what? It's the music that we listen to. It's the words that we read. It's the art that we, that we look at. It's the clothes that we wear. It's the colors through which we express ourselves. It's our fashions that is the cultural water in which we swim. My son is six and a half years old. That's the stuff he's gonna to connect to. Those stories, particular stories, are, if, if there are stories that he connects to, those are the stories that are gonna be with him all his life. You know, it's not, I mean, there is the value of learning, uh, of learning and, and book learning and the tradition and these things. Those are things that help us live our lives. You know, it's, knowledge is something that informs our lives but life is lived and life is messy and life is an expression of our cultures. And if we are not, if we're not thinking about this strategically, then we're missing the boat. And we have other examples from other communities. I, I mean, I find the example of Jewish communities in the aftermath of the Shoah and the aftermath of the Holocaust breathtaking. How do you build civilization and a sense of self after something so cataclysmically violent. Hmm. And yet there's an emergence of Jewish culture in the aftermath of, of the Second World War and of the Holocaust that is breathtaking, hmm. that changed the world, that, cha- that intellectually changed the sure. world, that changed the way we saw and we visualized. And I believe that, that every people, every, every, every people, every spiritual tradition, every history has stories that feed the human story. And I think it's time. It's Time is now. The time is late. The hour is late. Sure. But the time is now mm-hmm. to invest in our stories and in our ecosystem. Because that ecosystem isn't separate from other cultural ecosystems. It sits alongside with it. And that's where the organic exchanges happen. That's beautiful. And that's a great note to end on. And myself, I, I think the same thing. And that's really one reason, the main reason I you know, started this podcast is you know, I, I'll always make music, I'll always write poetry, inshallah. Um, but as I get older and, and, and just the blessing that has come along with that and traveling the world and meeting so many beautiful people and just having people 
connect with my most intimate, silent conversations with myself as I share them on stage. Um, you know, I and seeing so many amazing, powerful artists, musicians, poets, and, and them becoming my friends and collaborators, many of them you mentioned, you know, I want to see this as a legacy where these artists can give back and that there's a lineage yes. that develops, just like an intellectual or spiritual lineage, but there's a cultural lineage. And, you know, we need the platforms and we need the support and we need the financial support. We need the fellowships and we need people coming together. And we need the, the, the meeting of minds and the meeting of hearts and we need the conversation. So, you know, this, this podcast is in many ways just a small, you know, uh, drop of water in the bucket in that regard. But as I get older, I really want to, you know, do more. And I know we've had conversations about the ways that we could do that. So inshallah, I pray that Allah allows us to work together in that. Uh, I, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's an exciting time. And, and, and the fact that you're, you're, you know, people like you are traveling and experiencing the breath of, of I was particularly the Muslim world, you know, mm -hmm. and to be able to bring that, that energy and that experience back to, you know, the United States and back to home cities um, that 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 also is, is is I think an incredible part of the story, and it's about our global connectedness and 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 how we are how we can be rooted and cosmopolitan at the same time, and that's the beauty of Islam. Mm. I, I believe that. I believe it's the beauty of our spiritual DNA um, that we can do it so easily because because in a way our spiritual DNA allows us to be so comfortable anywhere. Beautiful. So what's the best way for people to connect with you or follow you or co connect on social media? Uh, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter at, at, uh, at AR Malik. Um, uh, I have an about.me page, which is, uh, which is about.me forward slash A-B-D-U-L-R-E-H-M-A-N-M-A-L-I-K. And if you Google my name these days, my, my, my Yale Fellows site comes up and all my social media uh, is there. Um, so look forward to, to, to connecting with, with the people who listen to this podcast, to, to friends and, and, uh, and new friends, um, wherever you may be. And, and, and the laws to you, Sidi, for this and for, for everything that you do and you, and, and you have done for your words and for your poetry. May, uh, may doors continue to open and, and the explorations grow ever deeper and more poignant, inshallah. I mean, I mean you too, my brother. And I, I welcome you with open arms to my country. Uh, don't believe the exactly news. Like it's it's a wonderful place, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and uh, inshallah, it'll be a, a really fertile time of transformation and growth and depth for you. And I look forward yeah. to, you know, what your future projects, inshallah. Amen. All right, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. And people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, 
available and seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Not